Welcome to the Faith Community Church Podcast, a ministry of Faith Community Church in South Boston, Virginia. We're glad you can join us as Pastor Dane Skelton shares a weekly message to encourage you to deepen your faith in Jesus Christ. Here's Pastor Dane. Let me ask you to open your Bibles to Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 13, Hebrews chapter 13. I did some research this week and I learned that cell phones, I knew, had not become common until the 1990s. I had to double check myself on that. I can remember having the flip phone that looked like the one from Star Trek. I always wanted one of those and I finally had one. And then they became obsolete. And in 1990, 11 million people had a cell phone. 11 million. Now the number is over 2.5 billion and climbing. Mr. Bell patented his telephone in 1876. By 1980, there were 175 million payphones in the world and countless home phones and office phones. Today, less than 500,000 payphones still work and home phones are going the way of the dinosaur. Most people use their cell phones anymore. They don't get a hard wire to their, phone, to their homes. And I'm sharing that telephone trivia as framework for the way that we think about goodbyes. The telephone and email and smartphones have changed how we think about saying goodbye to one another. They've changed our goodbyes by un- unconsciously making us believe that they are not important. Because really, honestly, today with, with these things, we almost never have to say goodbye in the way that we used to think about goodbye. Because why say goodbye when you can FaceTime with somebody halfway across the world or all the way around the world for that matter? We just don't think about goodbyes anymore. Goodbye isn't necessary when you can do that kind of thing, or at least we don't think it is. And so let me ask you a question. Do you know where the phrase goodbye came from? Goodbye is a contraction of a common farewell from the 16th century. God be with ye. So it's just goodbye. Goodbye seemed more important then, and they did all the way up through the late 20th century because people were more familiar with life's fragility and life's temporary nature, how fast it can be gone. I have, if you've ever been in my office, and most of you have not, but if you look at the base of my um, computer monitor, you'll see two little strange mechanical things. One is the anchor pin from the parking pawl of the rear brake assembly on a a one-ton Dodge truck, and the other is a broken bicycle tire valve stem. The first one I've kept on my desk all these years because it says to me, remember where you came from. I feel like one of the Old Testament prophets, God called me out of the garage (laughs) to preach. The second one I found down at the Cluster Springs Curve. Y'all just need to get used to this. This is going to happen in the next two weeks. 
In 2004, in September of 2004, when I went down to see where my friend Steve had been killed on his bicycle. And I put that one up there to remind myself how fast you can be gone. Remember where you came from and remember how fast you can be gone. So learn to say goodbye well. Goodbyes used to be more important to us. And from Genesis to Jude, the Bible is full of them. And knowing the frailty of life, that they may never see their friends or churches again, many of the Bible's goodbyes come with practical reminders about essential issues. And as I studied and prayed about what to say to you on my last three Sundays, I learned that most of these farewells contain similar exhortations. And so Hebrews 13 seemed to me to gather them all in one place. So we're going to start in Hebrews 13 and just sort of follow where it leads us through the rest of the text. But the goodbye in Hebrews 13 breaks down into four sections. Number one, the body, that's in verses 1 through 3. Number two, the home life or the personal life, that goes from verse 4 down to about the end of verse 8. Number three is the doctrines. That goes from about verse 9 down through uh, verse 16. And then it's followed up with the, what I call a fourth section with some short but uh, practical exhortations about leadership and um, how to pray for us. So we're going to start with number one, the body that's titled basically Love the Brotherhood. Verse 1 Keep on loving each other as brothers. The strength of any church lies in its love for one another. And you guys have always been a loving and kind church. Now, we're used to talking about the word agape when we talk about love in the Bible. This is not agape. This is Philadelphia. This is brotherly love. This is the affection that should be normal between siblings and normal in the church. And the writer is saying, you guys are doing well with this. Keep it up. Don't let anything interfere with this. Give you an example. The year before my middle daughter moved out to Montana, which that's been five years ago now, coming up maybe on six. But she and my youngest daughter, Michaela, went up to Clifton Forge, Virginia, to visit the site that uh, Emory had worked on with her uh, design build class at Virginia Tech. It was a short, unannounced visit. They went to visit in, uh, a couple that Emory had roomed with over that summer, her last year in college, or next to last year in college. So it was a short visit. It was unannounced. The lady did not know that they were coming. She had never met Michaela before, but she knew Emory. And so they went and tapped on the door, and the Robertsons were, were or the Roberts were glad to receive them. They go in, they have a nice visit, drink some lemonade, and they shared with Miss Roberts uh, what Emory was going to do. She was going to Montana, and Miss Roberts looked at Michaela and said, "Are you going to be okay with that? Because I can see that you two are very close." Now, she hadn't been around them an hour. And she could see that Philadelphia between them, sisterly love. I don't know what the Greek is for sisterly, but maybe it's in there someplace. But what she was seeing was Philadelphia. So the question for us as a church is, 
how do we do what the writer to Hebrews has told us to do here? How do we do this? Well, I think one chapter back sums it up for us very well. Hebrews chapter 12, look in verses 14 and 15. Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord and see to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and to defile many. I love that phrase. It's an imperative. See to it. See to it. In other words, make it a conscious choice not to miss God's grace. Literally there, the Greek is to fail to grab hold of God's grace. Pay attention to this, says the writer. The implication is clear. When we forget how gentle and how patient and merciful and kind God has been with us, we easily become harsh and irritated and unforgiving and insensitive with each other. We develop resentment. We develop animosity. And that is a bitter root that will eat a hole in the heart of any church. And so the writer is saying, watch that. Be careful of that. Keep on nurturing the brotherly and sisterly love that you already possess. So here's the first of, some, of a tough question that's, that's in this sermon. There's a series of three or four tough questions in this sermon today. When you think about anybody or anyone in this body of believers, do you feel resentment? When you think about anyone in this body of believers, do you feel resentment? Maybe somebody across the room, maybe somebody sitting next to you. If that is the case, grab hold of the grace of God. Remember his kindness toward you. Forgive them in the name of Jesus. And then go and do something kind and loving towards them, even if they don't deserve it. (laughs) Go and do something kind and loving, even if they don't deserve it. Okay, that was the first tough one. Let's go to the second tough one. Welcome the stranger. Welcome the stranger. Now, for most of us, when we look at this, we think, and we're totally justified in thinking he's talking about strangers, people that we don't know. And we usually think of this in terms of our own homes. We think about this in terms of our own lives. And so I'll talk about that for a minute, but I think it's bigger than that. It's, it's, it includes the church and how the church receives strangers. And a stranger can by, be identified by all kinds of things. A stranger is just someone who's not like you. A stranger can be someone who is of a different race. A stranger can be someone who is from another place. A stranger is someone who is different from you. I don't have any more rhyming aces. But is someone who is different from you in education. Someone who is different from you in point of view. Someone who is different from you in age. Many, many different ways that we can be strangers with each other. But any church can become inwardly focused we and so what he's encouraging us to do here is keep looking outward keep receiving the stranger keep welcoming and making people feel at home as you always have part of making a guest feel welcome is putting your house in order 
we grow comfortable with situations in our personal homes and even in our church homes that would make a guest feel uncomfortable. Let me give you an example. Magazines and newspapers pile up around my chair in the living room where I do a lot of my reading. And lately, these days, the newspapers don't get read and other things. And another thing that I do is I leave socks on top of my tennis shoes under the coat tree by the front door. Now, before you judge, I do it because I've only worn them for a half hour while I was working out on the Nordic track. And I'm trying to spare my wife extra laundry. And so I try to use them more than one day. And typically, they don't smell much. <laughs> Yet. Until you get to about day three or day four. That's not the most pleasant thing for a guest who's coming to visit you. When they walk right in the front door and see your socks. Much less if they get a whiff. It's just not very pleasant. Several years ago, this young man called and asked if he could camp out in the church parking lot because he was on a bicycle trip from Richmond down to somewhere, I think, in Georgia. And he had grown up in a church, and so he just knew if I talk to churches, typically they will let me camp out there. Well, the day that he was going to show up, it was I think it was early spring or something, and it was just cold and raining all day long and it was going to be cold and raining all night long and into the next day so I knew that he was coming he told me he would text me when he was about an hour out so I went home and I thought there's no way I'm going to let this guy sleep in a tent out in the church parking lot I'm just not going to let him do it so I went home I cleaned up my socks I cleaned up the newspapers and the books scattered around my, my chair. I uh, set a fire, I, I prepared a fire in the fireplace. I did not light it. Um, I, I did tell my wife. I, I cleaned up the spare bedroom. Sometimes I forget. And I get this message, you know, wife, wife, married, 35 years. I'm supposed to know. Um, so uh, I cleaned that stuff up. I cleaned up the spare bedroom. I made sure he had clean towels. Krista prepared a hot meal. So when he got there, about an hour before he got there, I lit the fire and he came in on the side porch. And I said, look, man, come in this room and be comfortable. And I said, please stay with us tonight. And he was like, no, no, I, I got to sleep in a tent. And I said, don't do that. I said, it's cold. It's wet. It's raining. It's going to rain all night. Just stay with us. Krista made a nice hot meal. He slept in a warm, dry bed that night. And the next morning, we sent him on his way. But I prepared. The house was ready. I did my best to make him feel comfortable, feel welcome, like we wanted him to be there. So let's think about that. We rearrange our schedule when we know that guests are coming. We anticipate their visit. We commit to be there when they arrive. So think about it this way. How would our guests feel 
If we left the socks on the floor and the newspaper scattered around the chair and no fire in the fireplace and no clean towels in the bathroom and didn't make up the bed, so if he was going to sleep in the bed, it was going to smell like the last person that, that slept in it. And what if, like right before, an hour before he showed up, we texted him and said, hey man, doors open, make yourself home, something came up, I can't be there. How's our guest going to feel? about that well here's here's the thing guys it's not cannot be there that's the, we always love to use that when we're talking to each other and we're getting ourselves out of a commitment we say oh, I can't be there it's not cannot it's will not I will not sacrifice my opportunities for the thing that seems best to me in the moment in order to make sure that my house is ready for the next guest that's coming. Because, see, we don't always know when they're coming. In fact, according to the scriptures, we almost never know when they're coming. You see where I'm going with this? Every church and institution coming out of the pandemic, like every church coming out of the pandemic, um, many of our ministry teams are not functioning. Now, I do not want to imply by any stretch that the work is not getting done. The work is getting done, but it's getting done in an ad hoc way for most of us. If you'll take that uh, insert in your bulletin out, that church task list, what this means is that just some of the rooms in our house are not ready for guests. Um, and that's just not going to be sustainable over time. One of the things that I had the hardest problem with when I made this decision to say this was going to be my last month at FCC was I felt, and I told the, the, the elders, I said, I feel like I'm letting you guys down because somebody needs to be here to make sure this stuff happens. Well, guess what, guys? Y'all have got to make sure it happens. Some of us have held back from involvement because we don't want to spread the virus. Thankfully, that's behind us. Some of us have held back from commitment because we haven't been asked. I take responsibility for that. I'm the pastor. I'm supposed to ask people to do things. I'm not supposed to say no for people. My job is to challenge the flock to engage your energies and your gifts where they're needed in the flock. And I know enough about your lives to understand the stress that most of you are under. And I, it, it, it's like it does something inside of me when I ask you to put more stress on you to do something. The only way that I know for you to relieve stress is to unload some commitments and open door opportunities to other things. I'll talk about that in a minute. Some of us have held back because we have adopted the cultural values that say, above all, keep your options open. I wouldn't want to miss out on something really cool because I made a long-term commitment. So let's get even more specific. Now I could stand here right now and I could go across every row and I could call out people who have made and, have, and are still making long-term commitments to this ministry. And you guys know who you are. I'm not going to point you out, at least not today, just to say thank you. My heart goes out to you. Thank you. But let me talk to the older folks for a minute. One of the things that we as older folks do is we say, I've done my time, let the youngsters serve, I'll write a check. 
Well, a small church like this is not a church that can afford to either find or pay enough people to work on a paid staff to do everything. It's got to be us. It's got to be the congregation. And I know the other thing that you think is I don't have the energy that you guys, that, you, that the young guys do. I know, I don't either. I worked all morning yesterday morning cleaning up my back porch and my screen porch. I ate lunch and then I sat down in my chair for a half hour nap. And I woke up an hour and a half later. Don't let that stop you from serving. There is always something to be done in a church. I'm going to urge you to connect with the leadership, with the elders, and say, what needs to be done? I will figure out what I have to do to be there and make it happen. One of our elders said something to me that I think is prophetic. I don't think a pastor will want to come here until we are a fully functioning church. I think he's right about that. So that's the older guys. To the younger generation, I know the struggle you are in. We raised three children while I was serving as a, uh, we had three children and raised them while I was serving first as a volunteer intern in a church and working 40 hours a week as a mechanic that was in a job that was 25 miles away from where we lived and then leading small groups in the middle of the week and leading worship on the weekend and teaching classes on the weekend. I know where you're at. I know how hard that is. You may not even have any children yet, but you hope to one day. You've got your job lined up. You've got your career. You've got a paycheck coming in. And so, as I heard, in, it was in a play, I think, the world is your oyster, okay? All the opportunities in life to do things that are available to you in America are wide open, and you don't want to shut down any of those opportunities. I understand how that feels. In economics, they call that the... The opportunity cost of investing. As soon as you decide to invest in one thing, you've shut down your options for several other things. But you have to ask yourself, what is truly important? What do I want for my kids one day? What do I want for my family? What do I want for my friends and their kids? What do I want for my community how will God evaluate my life's contribution to his kingdom? Jesus said, everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required, and from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Luke 12, 48. Paul, writing to the Galatians, For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Galatians 5, 13 toward the end of the book. First, uh, Peter writing to the people that he was, the churches he was writing to, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. So we have to ask ourselves, what does God want for his church, not what do I want for myself? He wants us to have our house in order so that we can welcome the stranger and he or she will have a nursery to care for her children, a class to learn what God wants of us, 
a small group to share life with, a meaningful ministry to help the poor, a worship service that helps him connect with and hear from God, a path to hear the gospel in a meaningful way in a facility that is pleasant and well-kept. You know what I just did? I just listed all of our E-teams. You can look on that insert there and you can find which E-teams have people leading them and working in them and which ones don't. So here's the hardest thing for us in our late 20s and early 30s. Choosing to say no so that we can say yes. Choosing to say no so that we can say yes. The only way to achieve something meaningful is to acknowledge that we cannot do everything possible. I'll say that again. The only way to achieve something meaningful is to acknowledge that we cannot do everything possible. I want to bore you with another seminary story. I think I've told you this before, but oh well. My favorite professor was L.R. Barnard. And I went to see Dr. Barnard one afternoon in his, in his rooms, as they would call it. He was British. And we talked about several things, and I, I, was feel, I felt like this tidal wave was... I was running from this tidal wave of responsibilities all the time because the reading, the requirements were so intense. And I was working at a job, and I was newly married, and I was doing a master's degree, a master's of divinity, and I was volunteering at my church and all that stuff. And I said, Dr. Barnard, I just feel like I'm, I'm just overwhelmed. How do I, how do, I do this? And he said, you have to learn to say no. I said, to who? He said, you have to learn to say no to yourself. Because there's so many things, guys, that we can involve ourselves in. And making a church like this work takes sacrifice. That's what it takes. It takes saying, I'm going to say no to this and this and this and this and this, so that I can say yes to this because this is important. And here's what I believe. The more we do that as a church, the more you do that when I'm gone, God will fill this place up with more people to do more things. But if we all stand aside and if we all say, well, I can't do that because, and I can't do that because, and I can't do that because, this church will fail to meet the potential that God has built into it. And I don't want to see that happen. In fact, I actually believe that it's important for me to get out of the way. For some of you to hear God's call to do the things he's created you to do. Well, that's way too convicting. So let's get past that and let's get to the third one. Stand with the mistreated. Verse 3. Remember those in prison as if you were their fellow prisoners and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. Unlike many of our brothers and sisters in the world, no American Christians are in prison for their faith. Not yet. By the way, one of the things our board agreed to do recently was uh, we are going to help 
uh, a brother in Azerbaijan buy a car. And so we've cut a check for $1,000 for that. We're also going to help some of the people that I know in India with the COVID relief efforts. And we're going to send that check soon. So we're not unconscious of the mistreated in other places, the pressure that they're under, and we try to stay conscious and stay involved with that. But unlike many of our brothers in the world, no American Christians are imprisoned for their faith, not yet. But our brothers and sisters in Christ are being mistreated for their faith when they refuse to celebrate and promote that which is completely contrary to God's will for men and women and that which goes against their religiously informed conscience. You've probably heard of Jack Phillips, the cake baker, cake artist in Colorado. He just released a book, The Cost of My Faith. The Cost of My Faith. I'd encourage you to get that book and read it. I've downloaded it as an ebook myself, but I haven't started it yet. But then imagine that you're at a school board meeting discussing changes to school district policy, and that's going on all over the state right now, and one of the teachers comes to the school board as a citizen and politely, respectfully, thoughtfully voices his concerns. How would you react? Would you think that that was a good thing? Even if you disagree, would you appreciate the fact that he really cares about his students and he wants what's best for his students? Well, that's what Tanner Cross did a few weeks ago up in Loudoun County, Virginia. Here's what he said. I love all of my students, but I will never lie to them regardless of the consequences. I am a teacher, but I serve God first, and I will not affirm that a biological boy can be a girl and vice versa because it's against my religion and it's lying to those children. Forty-eight hours later, he was suspended from his job. Now, thankfully, the Alliance Defending Freedom did for Tanner what the Apostle Paul did for the believers in Philippi when he challenged the legality of punishing and imprisoning a Roman citizen without trial. Do you know that story? Acts chapter 16. You can find that in verse 37. The Apostle Paul had been beaten and imprisoned, and he was a Roman citizen. When they found out he was a Roman citizen, they came to him quietly and they said, gee, we're really sorry. Why don't you leave now? And he said, no, no, no. I want a public apology. Why did Paul make that confrontational act. You know, we think that Christians are not supposed to be confrontational. We're not supposed to get involved in government. Paul was a Roman citizen. Why did he take that confrontational tack? Because he was leaving other believers in Philippi who might be attacked the same way had he not stood up for his rights as a Roman citizen. He was protecting the people he was leaving behind. Men and women, it's not all about, well, they haven't come for me yet. It's about identifying with and standing up for our brothers and sisters in Christ who are being mistreated because if they're coming for them now, they're coming for us next. And we can do something about it now. A couple of years from now, that may not be the case. The outcome, so Alliance Defending Freedom went in and filed a suit. A judge 
in that district court said, this is unfair, you can't do this to this guy. He was, his job has been reinstated for now, but Loudoun County is going to try to win that case. The outcome of that litigation will affect every public school teacher and student in Virginia. Every teacher, every student. And it's not enough. I do not believe that it is enough for us as Christians to say, pulling my kids out, going to the private school. Men and women, we are Americans. We are not descended from timid men and women. This country was not put together by people who ran away from a fight. If we run away, we are condemning the generations that come after us. And we will rightly be held to account. So how do we support these guys? We need to stand with them whenever and wherever we can. I've been listening to John Stone Street's reports on this. He actually grew up in a county adjacent to Loudoun County. When he grew up, Loudoun County was farmland. And now it's urban Washington, D.C., and this kind of stuff is going on. And he said what impressed him most was that Mr. Cross's church stood up with him, unequivocally stood up with him and stood behind him. That's what's going to be needed. And that's going to mean that churches all over this country who are willing to do that are going to take a lot of criticism and a lot of hatred and a lot of vitriol. Think about the people who have done this. Think about what's happened to Jack Phillips, for example. This has been going on now in Jack Phillips' life for 10 years these repeated cases to the Supreme Court in Jack Phillips' life. Same thing for Baronel Stutzman, almost that long. I was talking with Stephen Kratz, our dear friend, uh, several weeks ago, and he mentioned Rosaria Butterfield. You know Rosaria Butterfield, the former lesbian um, tenured professor at Syracuse University and teacher of women's studies, leader of the homosexual movement, has written several books now about how God led her out of that world and led her to, into his kingdom. And she has spoken kindly but forthrightly about what all that's about. Stephen and his family are personal friends with Rosaria and her husband. And he said, you would not believe the abuse that she takes on a daily basis because of her public stand. If we take this stand with our brothers and sisters, we will be abused. We need to be ready for that. And just trust God and keep going. So how do you support them? Pray. Second, support Alliance Defending Freedom, or there are other such legal entities out there now that are like the counterpart to the ACLU. Support them financially. Support them in prayer. Pray for these lawyers. You know, I think nobody thinks we're supposed to pray for lawyers. <laughs> pray for these Christian lawyers. They need it. They need it for clarity of thought and accuracy of, and, and persuasiveness of their arguments. Uh, buy Jack's book, like I mentioned. And then finally, and probably as important as anything, vote. Vote to put people in office who will change these policies. Well, Hebrews 13 is, like many other New Testament farewells, very practical. And what I've tried to do is be very practical today. 
But lest we get caught up in the pragmatic and forget the most important thing, let me close with a quote from A.W. Tozer. Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos, all tuned to the same fork, are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers met together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. Tune your heart to Christ and he will do the rest. I'll back up again to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for this intense word. Thank you for your call on our lives, that you've given us this amazing privilege to be part of this thing you call the church, the called out ones of God. Give us courage, Father, as we face the coming uncertain days. Help us to fix our eyes on you and tune our hearts to you every day. And we will look forward to what you are going to do in our lives and in this church, in our community and in our country. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for listening. To learn more about Faith Community Church, you can find us online at fccsobo.org or on our Facebook page by searching Faith Community Church. As always, God loves you, we love you, and we hope you have a wonderful week.